Hi everyone, so we are living in strange times indeed. The Talmud, written between 200 and 500 of the Common Era, records a mysterious but deadly illness known as Ratan. The rabbis took great pains to avoid it, employing a few medieval tricks that don't seem too far off the mark, staying upwind of those who have it, steering clear of certain areas of town, and generally avoiding those thought to be contagious. Except for one rabbi, Yehoshua ben Levi, who instead embraced the sufferers and studied Torah with them, that they would not feel abandoned. He believed that for the body to heal itself, the mind and soul must also be nourished, and what better way than studying Torah? Ironically, working from home through this coronavirus panic has not afforded me much more time to work on the podcast, but in any case, here we all are, stuck inside and quarantined. So let's make the best of it and jump right back into Israeli history from 1948 to 1967. I'm often asked whether Israel is a theocracy, and the answer is that Israel is a democracy, but one that does not separate synagogue and state. In practice, this means that Israel can observe an outwardly religious character in the way that other democracies do not. It also means that one's religious identity can take on a great deal of importance, whereas that's not the case in other democracies. We're talking about how Israel put the Jewish in the Jewish state. Last episode, the answer was through a secular Zionist identity that emphasized things like Hebrew language and ancient archaeology. But that wasn't enough for the ultra-Orthodox, for whom a strict interpretation of Jewish religious law defines what is and is not Jewish. For Israel to be the Jewish state, for its Jewish citizens, it must adhere to Jewish law. Well, this set up a profound contradiction. The secular state of Israel aimed for a wide and inclusive definition of who is a Jew, and this contrasted with Orthodoxy's narrow interpretation. So who is a Jew? Well, the irony is that the Jewish state is the most difficult place in the world to answer that question. That's what we're into today. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We can think of identity in Israel in three ways. Citizenship is one, nationality is the second, and religion is the third. And let me give you the end result. In Israel, there are two types of Jews who are citizens. Those who are nationally Jewish and those who are religiously Jewish. It's weird. Now, Israeli citizenship is the most straightforward for us to understand because it's the most familiar to those of us living in a democracy. Although, according to my podcast analytics report, there is exactly one of you living in Somalia. So, sorry, not you. Also, please email me. I'm dying to know who in Somalia is listening. Anyway, citizenship in Israel, like in any other democracy, is not dependent on your religion. Jews, Muslims, Christians, citizens of Israel are entitled to the same rights and privileges as all other citizens. All very nice and democratic, so we're good there. But then there's the second way, nationality, and here's where things start getting complicated. Although your religion plays no role in whether you can become a citizen of Israel, your nationality does. The simplest explanation here is that your nationality is a secular definition of who you are. Jew, Arab, Druze, and a few other categories. It might be easier to substitute in the word ethnicity. 
nationality in Israel is America-speak for ethnicity, which is why I say Arab, which is an ethnicity, instead of Muslim, which is a religion. Israel is the Jewish state, and the government wanted, of course, Jews to move there and become citizens. Israel made it so that your nationality, your ethnicity, determines whether you can obtain citizenship. And for that, your nationality has to be Jewish. In 1950, the Knesset passed the Law of Return, which I talked about a few weeks back. The Law of Return states that every Jew in the world has the right to move to Israel as an immigrant and obtain citizenship. Now, the law didn't define who is a Jew, but it did allow for an expansive view of who can be considered a Jew as a nationality, again, as an ethnicity. Well, here's the problem, which brings us to our third way of considering identity, religion. Jewish law makes no provision for your ethnic identification. You are a Jew if your mother is Jewish or if you underwent a strict Orthodox conversion. And that's it. If your father is Jewish and you were raised Jewish, it doesn't matter. Under strict Jewish law, you are not a Jew, even though you identify your own self as a Jew. So we've got this bizarre paradox. You can be nationally, ethnically Jewish enough for the Jewish state to grant you citizenship, but at the same time, not Jewish enough to be considered a Jew by the religious authorities. You are a Schrodinger Jewish cat, simultaneously Jewish and not Jewish. The reason why this matters is that being Jewish under Jewish law means that you are affected by what we call personal status laws. Marriage, divorce, burial, conversion, these all fall under the authority of the Orthodox religious authorities in Israel. But the catch is that they only apply to Jews whom the Orthodox consider fully religiously Jewish. For example, if you want to get married in Israel, both partners have to be Jewish under the definition of Jewish law. And by the way, Judaism does not have any special privileges or rights that other religions don't have. Each religious community in Israel, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, govern their own theological communities without interference from the state. So the question of whether Israel is a theocracy is, well, no. Judaism as a religion does not reign supreme above the others. Now, you might think that this is a somewhat narrow problem. After all, if you are religiously Jewish, as in your mother is Jewish or you converted, then you're solid for both the nationality and religion categories. But what about if you converted but not through an Orthodox rabbi? What about your spouse? What about your child? Israel realized very quickly that this was going to be a bureaucratic headache, not to mention that it would divide families. So in the late 1950s, the government decided that anyone who declared in good faith that they are a Jew by nationality, by ethnicity, would be considered as such. And if parents asserted that their kid was a Jew, it would be accepted. The state wouldn't worry about whether they were in compliance with Jewish law. Well, the Orthodox religious authorities had a huge problem with the Israeli government taking such an expansive view of who was a Jew. Citizenship wasn't their concern. The state can make whomever they want a citizen, irrespective of religion. They don't care. But this is the Jewish state, they insisted, and if it wants to be Jewish, it has to follow Jewish law in determining who is a Jew. In other words, get rid of this nationality category. It doesn't count. This reasoning, though, it poses a huge problem for Zionism. Remember last episode, 
Zionism is about the secular nationality of the Jewish people. Jews, says Zionism, can be Jewish without having to bend to the will of religious law. If we're now going to say that you have to be religiously Jewish in order to be nationally, ethnically Jewish, we're invalidating Zionism. So in 1958, David Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister, posed a question to 51 Jewish scholars around the world, hoping to resolve this problem. Precisely who, he asked, who is a Jew? Back in 1946, Ben-Gurion's son, Amos, who was serving in the British Army, he was wounded. He fell in love with his nurse at the British hospital, a Christian woman named Mary. Ben-Gurion arranged for Mary to convert to Judaism by an American rabbi of the Reform Movement. They then had a Jewish wedding in England before returning to Israel. But what the ultra-Orthodox rabbinic authorities saw was that the leader of the country circumventing the rules to avoid having to get their approval, which they never would have given, since Mary didn't undergo an Orthodox conversion. Therefore, she's not really Jewish. Therefore, she and Amos can't get married officially. So this Ben-Gurion family drama turned into a political crisis for him as well. Part of his government sided with him, but the ultra-Orthodox party did not, threatening to bring down the coalition government. Hence his question to the 51 scholars. If a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman, but they decide to raise their children Jewish, can the state of Israel officially register those children as Jewish, so that they can immigrate as Jewish citizens? According to the Law of Return, the answer is yes. But according to the ultra-Orthodox who controlled religious law, the answer is no, because their mother isn't Jewish. So which is it? The secular democratic answer? or the theological one. In the Jewish state, who gets to be a Jew and who doesn't? David Ben-Gurion held to the expansive view offered by the Law of Return. Since the surrounding culture is Jewish, a non-Jew married to a Jew would assimilate into Jewish-Israeli culture, and so would the children. So the net effect would be to get more Jews. He appreciated that for 2,000 years, when there wasn't a Jewish state, religious law strictly upheld marriage between two Jews as a way to preserve the Jewish people. But now we've got Israel, he said. We don't need that strict interpretation anymore. Simple national ethnic identification will do, because the important thing is having anyone who identifies as Jewish be able to come here. Of course, Orthodox Jews 100% oppose this idea. Jewish law is Jewish law. And for a time, the Orthodox prevailed. Because the law of return did not offer a nationality definition of Jew, Israel in 1960 took up the Orthodox definition, which rested on Jewish law. You could only register yourself nationally Jewish if you were already religiously Jewish. But this lasted only 10 years. In 1970, the Law of Return was amended to include non-Jewish spouses, children of mixed marriages, people who only had one Jewish grandparent. All these people could now automatically become Israeli citizens because of their national identification as Jewish. Okay, are you confused? Me too. Here's the point. We've got a paradox here. You can have someone whom the law of return considers a Jew, but whom the ultra-Orthodox do not. And Israel, to this day, 2020, has never definitively resolved this situation. 
So let's back up a second. Who are these religious authorities who get to decide all this in a democracy? Now they aren't a monolithic group, but we tend to lump them into one large category known as the Haredim, or Haredi, meaning the ultra-Orthodox. These are the Jews you've probably seen pictures of, or in person. The women dressed very modestly, the men dressed almost exclusively in black suits, white shirts, and black hats. There's a long history of the Haredi relationship with Zionism in the Jewish state, which is too much to get into here. But while many Orthodox communities, then and now, continued to oppose the creation of a Jewish state, others embraced it. By the time Israel was established in 1948, the ultra-Orthodox had already established themselves as a consequential institution with real communal, moral, and political power. When Ben-Gurion formed Israel's first government, he included the ultra-Orthodox in his governing coalition. Why? Well, one reason was politics. Since he excluded both the right-wing and the communists from his coalition, he needed the ultra-Orthodox voting bloc in the Knesset. They were the third largest political party in Israel, so their votes could make or break his government. The second reason was even more cynical. Ben-Gurion and the other secular Zionist leaders didn't think the Haredi would be around much longer. The Zionist movement had sought to create a Jewish state without the Jewish religion. Hebrew, yes. Jewish history, yes. Jewish culture, yes, but no forcing theology on public policy. Meanwhile, the Holocaust had murdered four-fifths of the ultra-Orthodox communities of Europe. There were so few Haredi left that Ben-Gurion thought that they would soon assimilate entirely into the new Israeli identity being created. He was willing to give them leeway in matters of setting religious policy, because he figured that it would eventually only apply to a small group of people. But he got that wrong. Israel's Haredi population today is around 12% of the total. In any case, Israel has a unique institution run by the Haredi, called the Rabbinate. Israel has two chief rabbis, one Ashkenazi and the other Sephardi. The chief rabbinate has been around since before Israel was established, and it remained in place to oversee, govern, and decide all matters of Jewish religion in Israel. It only applies to Israel's Jewish citizens, not Muslims or Christians, who have their own religious authorities. And the rabbinate, although it's powerful, it isn't the papacy. They don't really have jurisdiction over Jews who don't live in Israel. As an American Jew, there's no real expectation that I owe loyalty to the chief rabbi, and I'm not bound by their policies unless it involves Israel. For instance, if I want to get married in Israel, then I have to follow the orthodox rules on marriage. But if I get married here in the States and later on move to Israel, Israel will still recognize my marriage, whether or not the rabbinate approves of it. But everyone has a boss, and the rabbinate's boss is the democratically elected Israeli government. The Knesset gives the rabbinate the governing authority, and therefore, in theory, the rabbis are bound to act within the guidelines and constraints as set forth by the Knesset. So you do get this strange hybrid of democracy and theocracy. The question is, what does all this mean in practice? Even before Israel was established, Ben-Gurion and the ultra-Orthodox had an agreement in place in which national institutions would reflect Orthodox adherence to Jewish law. For instance, Shabbat was an official day of rest. 
businesses are closed, government offices are closed, there's no public transportation, anything controlled by the government shuts down from Friday evening to Saturday night. Even El Al, the national airline, doesn't fly on Shabbat. If you've ever spent a Shabbat in Jerusalem, it's a fascinating thing to experience. All the crazy Middle Eastern hustle and bustle of a major city comes to a screeching halt around 4 p.m., and quite suddenly everything stops. There are almost no cars driving around, there's no buses, everything is closed and quiet. Shabbat is in effect a national holiday, once a week. Beyond Shabbat, all food served under government auspices must be certified kosher, including the army. You might be deep behind enemy lines on a top-secret mission, but that package of food you're scarfing down under camouflage netting has been blessed by a rabbi. The Haredi maintain their own educational system, too, in which young men would be taught in many cases exclusively the Torah and no secular subjects. Finally, and most critically, the ultra-Orthodox were allowed to control Israel's civil laws around personal status. Marriage, divorce, death and burial, conversion... All these policies were set in accordance with the Haredi interpretation of Jewish law. And we heard earlier how complicated marriage alone turns out to be. There was another crucial decision that turned out to have very far-reaching consequences. The Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox, they wanted an exemption from military service for young men studying in the yeshiva, the religious academies where they learned Torah. As you may know, military service in Israel is compulsory for men and women at age of 18, but the ultra-Orthodox didn't want their young men to miss crucial studying years to boot camp and stand in guard. Ben-Gurion wasn't a huge fan of this exemption, but he saw its merits. Not just politically in terms of keeping the Haredi on his side. He appreciated the benefit of having a small group of highly trained Jewish scholars in the Jewish state. So he granted an exemption for 400 young men to skip the army to stay in yeshiva. Well, what in the early 1950s was just a few hundred young Haredi teenagers has turned into, now in the year 2020, more than 65,000 annual exemptions from military service. And this is a huge problem for secular Israelis. They see tens of thousands of citizens who don't contribute to the state. They study Torah all day, don't often work, don't pay taxes, receive billions of dollars in state welfare for their lifestyle, and don't perform national service in defense of the country. It's a major source of tension, and efforts in recent years to force conscription on the ultra-Orthodox has met with fierce political controversy. Last year, in 2019, one of the right-wing secular parties in the governing coalition insisted on the passage of legislation to force Haredi men to serve. When the religious parties objected, the secular party bolted, bringing down the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and triggering new elections. That seemingly small religious exemption Ben-Gurion made at the start of the state is today so powerful that it's crashing the Israeli government. Okay, so I hope you are confused by all of this, because it is confusing. And what's the point? We're used to thinking that the definition of a democracy includes the strict separation of church and state. But Israel is a unique democracy because of its identification with Judaism. In 1954, Ben-Gurion said, We must not separate religion from the state. The state of Israel and the Jewish people share a common destiny. This state cannot exist without the Jewish people. 
and the Jewish people cannot exist without the state. So Israel doesn't separate synagogue and state, and that's how the rabbinate is able to impose a strict interpretation of Jewish law on Israel's Jewish citizens. The problem, as we've seen, is that their strict view of who is a Jew clashes with the wide-open perspective from the law of return. So when it comes to the personal status laws that are controlled by the rabbinate, they only apply to Jews deemed Jews by the ultra-Orthodox, that is, Jews who have a Jewish mother or who underwent an Orthodox conversion. If that's not you, then it doesn't apply, which gets weird. For two Jews to marry each other, they both have to be Jewish under the Orthodox interpretation. If one is, but the other isn't, even if under the law of return they are both considered Jewish, well, they can't get married. So what do they do? Well, they go to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, which in this scenario is like going to Vegas. They hop on a plane for an hour-long flight to Cyprus, get hitched, come back, register their marriage with the country's civil authorities, and they're all good. Of course, the rabbinate won't recognize their marriage, but if you're a secular Jew, you probably don't care all that much. Like I said, if you're super confused, that's okay. Here's the crux of it all. Israel is defined as Jewish by complementary and competing visions of Judaism. One is the secular Zionist vision, in which one assimilates into the national Jewish culture of this state. Your Jewishness is defined as being Israeli. It's a national designation, not a religious one. One time in Israel, I was riding in a taxi with one of my birthright participants when she whispered to me, Do you think the cab driver is Jewish? The driver overheard her and started waving his arms around. Of course I'm Jewish, he yelled. Where do you think you are? This is a Jewish city. The people here are all Jewish. Our government is Jewish. Our flag is Jewish. Our language is Jewish. Our history is Jewish. Of course I'm Jewish. He said nothing about Torah or God. The other vision, though, is based on centuries of accumulated rabbinic authority, in which one's Jewishness and that of the state is defined by a strict adherence to Jewish law. An example of this is the strictness over marriage. And so Israel's Jewish identity is determined not just by outward things, like shutting down the buses for Shabbat or having the army keep kosher. Israel's Jewish identity is also set by the determination over who is and is not officially a Jew. David Ben-Gurion received 51 separate answers to his question about who is a Jew. And the state of Israel has never to this day definitively resolved the question. It remains the case that one can be an Israeli Jew and yet not considered a Jew under religious law. Israeli identity and Jewish identity continue to stand both together and apart. The Jewish state, it turns out, is both Jewish and state. The 1950s were pretty intense. From domestic politics to conflict with the Arabs, we're only partway through when it's been tumultuous. Trust me, Israeli history has no intention of being less dramatic going forward. From political scandal to terrorism along the border, 1953, 54, and 55 bounce from one crazy story to the next. In the middle of it, perhaps craziest of all, David Ben-Gurion, the lion of Israeli history, abruptly decided to call it quits. The music today is Shlomi Dasko and the Zemiros Group. 
Lipa Schmelzer, and a classic song of the Nanach Orthodox spiritual movement. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to wash your hands and avoid large crowds. Talk to you next time. Lihit Rhodes. Amen.